0: Hello and welcome to Inside Modular, the podcast of commercial modular construction brought to you by the Modular Building Institute. Welcome, everyone. My name is John McMullen. I'm the marketing director here at MBI. Today, I'm talking with Stephen Shang, founder and CEO at Falcon Structures. Stephen is here to talk about the possibilities of container-based buildings, as well as to give us an overview of his current work as the chair of MBI's Government Affairs Committee. Stephen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about yourself. What's your background and and what's got you interested
1: in building with containers in the first place? Sure. Yeah, I I, I do have quite a checkered past, John. Um, You know, I I actually was an electrical engineer in college. Uh, I was probably the only one from my class who graduated who doesn't know how to jumpstart a car. Hmm. Um, But from there, kind of went into kind of high finance, consulting, different streams like that, and was chasing dot-com gold out in San Francisco when in 2002, I had this, um, this Eureka moment where I said, you know what, I would really like to build a real business, something that you can touch, feel, kick, you know, and, uh, and, and so we stumbled across the idea of kind of buying shipping containers because there's so many piled up in the ports and renting them out for portable storage. So that was our, my first introduction to containers. Well, very cool. You, you do have quite the checkered past.
0: And it seems like you have evolved a bit. Uh, yourself over the course of your career. And so I'm wondering about your buildings now. Tell me about how they have evolved, because you've been doing this for over 20 years now. I have to imagine you've learned a thing or two. Uh, how, have, how have your structures and your designs evolved now that you've been working with them for so long?
1: Sure, yeah. So when we first started out, it was all about just portable storage, right? And we even called them storage containers. And back then, nobody really knew what a shipping container was. So they all thought we were selling Tupperware or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we listened to the marketplace. And so as we started getting involved with renting out portable storage containers for construction sites to store electrical gear or you know plumbing uh, fixtures, uh, we listened to the customer and then we started getting the question, hey, can you build us uh, job site offices out of these containers? We'd love to use them, they'd be ground level, highly secure. And so we thought, you know what? We know a couple guys could help us figure that out. And so we started figuring it out. And next thing you know, we were in the uh, kind of job site trailer business and renting out what we call ground level offices. Now, 2008, 2009 hits, and I'm sure you'll remember we had the Great Recession and about 67% of our customers were uh, in the construction industry. So we had all these containers coming back off the construction sites and we're like, oh man, what do we do now? We've personally guaranteed all these loans to build up a huge rental fleet. How do we get ourselves out of it? So again, listening to the customer, we were approached by a group in San Antonio, actually the Air Force, and they asked us, hey, can you build us a simulated village using these shipping shipping containers? I'm like, well, what kind of village? And they're like, well, we need a Middle Eastern theater. We need to really, uh, you know, ha- have some way to really train our troops against IEDs, improvised imp- explosive devices. Mm-hmm. And not knowing what it was, we're like, yeah, of course we can. Right. And so next thing you know, we're in the military training business. And after four or five years, we had built uh, probably the largest container based uh, city in the US. It's a simulated city of 700 shipping containers out in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. And then in 2012 to 2013, from the lessons we learned from that, again, listening to our customers, we started thinking, you know what, there's probably an application for container-based structures in just general industry, not just with the military. And we were starting to develop into more of a manufacturer than just a construction company. And we thought, you know what, we can take a lot of those lessons that we learned and really start manufacturing these. And so in 2014, 2015, Falcon Structures was born. And from there, we've really developed how to build structures using containers uh, and and build them efficiently through a manufacturing mindset.
0: That's very cool. Very cool. So what you've built so many things. What's what's the first step in, in making a container building? Obviously, you need a container, but what needs to be done to that raw container, so to speak, before construction can begin?
1: Yeah. So different than traditional modular, and I think you're asking about what's the first step in manufacturing, not the first step in an ideation project. Well, yes. (laughs) So what's different about a container-based structure is you're actually starting with the container, Mm -hmm. right? You have the box and in a lot of modular factories that I've toured over the years, you're starting with nothing. And you're actually building the box using either timber or you're building it with steel. With us, we've bought the container. It's been used for shipping And then we're starting with that. And so the process is different in the sense that you're not starting from scratch. So you have a head start in that regard. But at the same time, when someone builds a floor from scratch, walls from scratch, things like that, they can build in the doors and windows. We have to cut out the doors and windows and then reinforce the container structure. So if you cut something out of a container, it has to be stronger. You have to reinforce the structure so that it doesn't kind of fall in on itself, right? So that's the first step, is really what we call our hot work step, but really it's it's the taking the shell and to start modifying the shell. Um uh, what
0: is it about a shipping container that makes it so versatile?
1: Yeah, I think I think there are a couple things about it that I actually I'll, I'll I'll talk about three things about the shipping container that that make it more versatile. I think um one is there's something about starting with a box versus starting with a blank sheet of paper that I believe captures the human imagination. Hmm. So there's a book uh, my wife bought for my kid kids. It's called um, It's Not Just a Box. And it's about this little rabbit who finds an Amazon refrigerator box. And you know where it goes. Next thing yep. you know, it's a racing car. It's a burning inferno. And so it's, it's, instead of starting from nothing, we're starting with a big box. And it captures, I think, people's imaginations right and so you see a lot of applications using containers i've been doing this for 20 years like you said and and i i'm still amazed at some of the things that come to us to this day you know in in, in the last few years we've seen people building swimming pools in these shipping containers hmm. they're building vertical farms to grow crops in uh they're ba- building wastewater enclosures i mean it's just limitless and i think it's because we all have that little rabbit inside of us right So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is is from a very practical standpoint, containers are not as flexible in their dimensions as a traditional modular structure. Traditional modular, you can go 12 feet wide, 13 feet wide, 16 feet wide. If you want to, you can go, you know, 53 feet long, 60 feet long, 35 feet long. Container, you're stuck. You're stuck with a 20-foot container or a 40-foot container. They're all eight foot wide, and some of them are nine and a half foot tall. Some of them are eight and a half foot tall right and so you'll notice our taglines think inside the box we believe with these design constraints that it forces you to be creative on how to use that space either through a single wide or double wide and all that but because you're limiting your design uh discipline to that what happens is you get much more creative ideas that come out of it and then on top of that what happens is you can ship these containers anywhere you want in the world because why they're shipping containers. There's an entire global infrastructure that's built around shipping these containers all over the world by rail, by truck, by ship, even by airplane, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the second reason I would say it's it's versatile. And then the third and final reason, I don't know why this is, we've been doing this for 20 years, but there are people out there who think shipping containers are cool, right? They do kind of look (laughs) cool. (laughs) <laughs> they're kind of cool. Some people like the industrial chic look of them. Some people think you're upcycling. I mean, they, they, there's a lot of re- different reasons. I'm not sure if that's gonna stick. I mean, it's stuck for the last 10, 15 years, but yeah, maybe that's something that comes and goes. But because they're cool, people tend to want to embrace projects with them uh a lot more than than just traditional construction.
0: Well, industrial chic is a thing. Yeah. Um <laughs> so you've mentioned the the possibilities, the this the the imagination that it takes to really, you know, use use these containers uh, to their full and growing potential. But what's what are the challenges behind really building with things? I know there must be some, and maybe it's just the other side of the coin, working within a confined space, working within, you know, defined parameters, as opposed to having that blank sheet of paper. But I was wondering if you could tell us about those challenges, and maybe if there's a project that you've done that was particularly challenging, and how you uh, got through that.
1: Yeah, I would say we identified one of the, big, so so de- definitely design constraints aside, because that that is a challenge and you have to be really clever in the way that you think about these. But I would say that one of the biggest challenges uh, compared to traditional construction or even modular construction is we are repurposing a shipping container. And so if you're looking at getting involved in permanent modular construction, well, what's one of the things you must comply with once the building codes? Right. Mm-hmm. And in, in 2015, when we first went down this path, the building codes didn't know what to do about containers. Right. You had this kind of real interest in, in the marketplace. You had all these different building code officials around the country. It was just this patchwork of regulations emerged. Some of it was duplicative. Some of it was conflicting. And And to build a container based structure that was building code compliant was extremely difficult. And their main reason for that was these building code officials didn't know whether or not they were safe. Unlike steel that you buy from the the steel yard or lumber, I mean, there was no traceability on the materials because these things are usually built overseas. And so the question was, well, it looks like it's strong, but how do I know that it's gonna withstand these kinds of forces or that the wind's not gonna blow it over? It's like, well, they've been across the ocean, they've been field tested, but a building code official is not gonna buy that, right? And so that was one of the big, big challenges that we saw in 2015 when we first joined the MBI. And that's when I got involved with the Government Affairs Committee. We said, how do we get containers into the building code? Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole long drawn out process on that. But it was really through those advocacy efforts that led us to 2023, where containers are now being uh, are in the 2021 building code that they are being accepted by building code officials and you see much more of a proliferation of container-based structures because these barriers have been resolved
0: uh so thanks for bringing up uh government affairs i wanted to switch gears uh to that anyway um you've been a member for for a number of years i was wondering if you could talk about sort of the mission of that committee and and why it's so important beyond just containers
1: yeah so if you look at MBI and all the all, all the different facets of value that it brings its membership i believe that government affairs is one of the things that, gov- that that MBI does amazingly well right and what do i mean by that is it really it it, it MBI is the voice of the modular industry but what is that voice being used for mm-hmm. and so lobbying advocacy really protecting our market protecting our assets but also finding new ways to use modular. I mean, these are all those things that you're interfacing directly with the government or with the building code community, right? And so somebody needs to be that collective voice in order to do that because, you know, a manufacturer out of Austin, Texas, trying to go talking, trying to talk to the ICC, the International Code Council, they're not going to give me the time of day. They're not going to listen to anything I have to say because, you know, I'm this, this little company and there's this international organization organization comprised of 64,000 code officials, but you have someone like MBI come in who represents the entire Modular Building Institute, and they go to the ICC and says, hey, look, you know, there's this new form of construction that's happening called modular, and it's really exciting, but right now the codes aren't written very well for it. How do we really drive adoption of that by improving the codes? Well, the ICC wants to do that. And 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 it gets the attention of the International Code Council, and then once you've got their attention, all of a sudden you can start having conversations with building code officials, saying, "Hey, look, here's why modular isn't scary. Here's why modular is going to help you solve affordable housing in your uh, in, in 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 your area. This is how it's going to help you build more schools. This is how it's going to solve Maslow's hierarchy of needs of just having a shelter, right? And and then all of a sudden." It's, it's it's awesome. And so that's why I got involved with the Government Affairs Committee is I just see that it opens up so many, um, so many opportunities for so many different companies. And it's just an exciting place to be. Well, we've certainly had some success with uh, ICC. I know we've got three standards that we've published,
0: a uh, new one, I think just this year. Uh, so that's very exciting. Uh, on another note, I-, I was wondering if you could speak to sort of the topic of the day, uh, or the year, perhaps, with with our government affairs committee, it's the the Davis Bacon Act and the problems that its expansion could bring to the industry. I was wondering if you could maybe give us an update on that, how it's affecting Falcon, or potentially could affect Falcon, and what it could mean for for other manufacturers around the country.
1: Sure, and and just as a recap, John, of what what exactly is going on with Davis Bacon. I mean, I think before I was involved in, in government affairs, if you said Davis-Bacon to me, I probably would have said, yes, please, and I'll have a side of eggs. Exactly. Right. So what, what Davis-Bacon is, is it, it it's a, I think it's a law, is what it's called, a law or an act? It's an act. Uh, it's an act, right? And what the act said is that if you're working on federal job sites, that you have to pay your workers what's called prevailing wages. And in essence, these are union wages and it was developed 100 years ago to really protect the unions from having lower cost labor from coming in and working on these federal jobs. So a couple of years ago, when we were in San Antonio at the World of Modular, the, uh, the current administration um, through the Department of Labor decided to clarify the Davis-Bacon rules. And they say clarify. And I, I'm, I'm saying these in quotes. I don't think the, the listeners can see me doing quotes, but it's clarify in quotes. And what they did was they said that it's not just the work that's being done on site that needs to pay these prevailing wages. It's work that's being done offsite as well. So really putting a target straight on the modular industry, right? And so if a modular manufacturer has to comply with those rules, if you're building something in New York and you have to pay the prevailing wages in New York, and let's say you're in Arkansas, well then all of a sudden you're paying your guys in the factory a lot more than you ever imagined. And not only to mention the administrative burden of trying to balance that with everything else. And so our estimation is that this really impacts our industry in a major way on a couple of fronts. One, as far as just business, it's going to cause a lot of us not to want to work on federal jobs, or it's going to make a, you know the pricing of these federal jobs increasingly difficult because we have to pay higher labor wages. Mm-hmm. So I think the current estimates is that it would have a 20% hit mm. on our industry going from about $12 billion a year to $10 billion a year. That's... That's substantial, right? It's a chunk. That's a huge chunk. And not to mention, this is the federal Davis Bacon. And there are a bunch of many Davis Bacons that are in the in the different states where they mirror kind of what's happening on the federal level. And so then all of a sudden, these state programs see it as being um, clarified in quotes. And then they start adopting this. Well, that starts to affect the local. And so I don't think that $2 billion drop takes that into account. So then you see even a bigger drop but then it in, impacts the marketplace affordable housing becomes less affordable schools become more expensive right so it has this ripple effect that it really really um, it, it just doesn't work and so what we've been working on on the government affairs committee is how to talk how to work with the current administration and and and, and educating them that this clarification really is not beneficial for the constituents for the for for for, for, for the citizens but they're actually very detrimental on multiple levels. And that's one of the things we've, we, we've really been working on the last couple of years.
0: And I know MBI has done its best to sort of get the word out. We're having this conversation. I've had conversations prior with our executive director and other people about uh, the Davis-Bacon Act and uh, its expansion. But if you're a manufacturer or if you are in the industry and you're hearing, for, hearing this for the first time. What can people do to get involved if they want to uh, oppose the expansion of of the Davis Bacon Act?
1: Yeah, definitely. A great question. so so there there are a couple of different ways a manufacturer can help, right? One is because we are all over the u s, you can definitely contact your local representative, u s. House Representative, or your local senator, right? For the longest time, this um this the, this clarification was bottled up in the executive branch. But based on recent efforts, we've been able to get it to the legislative branch. And the legislative branch is actually paying some attention to this with a couple of MBI government affairs members represent us in going to D.C. to talk to the different staffers that were tasked with understanding this issue. And they did a great job educating them. But that's that's not it. I mean, we need to educate as many representatives as we can. We need to educate as many senators as we can. And being that we're so geographically dispersed, we can actually make a difference by talking to our local guys because we are big employers in, 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 the areas where our factories are. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. The other way is really working with, um, with MBI with the regulatory relief fund. So we've definitely set that up. I know all the members of the board have contributed to this regulatory relief fund and we've been able to use that to hire some very high powered lobbyists in DC to help us strategize and figure out how to navigate this. But that money is continuing to be spent. And so contributing to that regulatory relief fund, that helps a great deal as well.
0: I think that was a great sort of Davis-Bacon in a nutshell. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Switching gears just a little bit, you'd mentioned you know, this sort of this bomb dropped at World of Modular. You've been at World of Modular for many years. This past year is just a month or so ago. It seems like so much longer than that ago, but it really wasn't. It was about a month, was um, a month ago, yeah. Can you tell me about uh, your presentation it had to do a lot with what we were talking about earlier, with containers, with building codes. I was wondering if you could give us a gist of that presentation uh, for those who may have missed it. Sure,
1: and and just to plug for World of Modular, you know, we started going to World of Modular in I think it was like 2015 or 2016, and it was at the Bellagio, like it was this past yeah. year. Uh, but there were maybe five, six hundred people there, right? It was still a pretty small conference, and and you know, there was some buzz, but but it was it was like okay. Uh, th- this is nice. And, you know, you spend some time around the pool and all that. This world of modular in 2023 was also at the Bellagio and it was just gangbusters, right? 1500 attendees 1, I mean, a re- record for MBI. There was no time to go sit around the pool. I mean, it was session after session networking after networking. It was just, it was absolutely amazing. And the energy and the enthusiasm around the modular industry, it was just unbelievable. So if you missed it, Definitely try, try, try to make it next year for 2024's World of Modular in Orlando. Um, but it is really quite the event. Well, and I so always, maybe, I'll take the plug. Thank you very much. We'll be in Orlando next year. <laughs> definitely. Um, but as far as my presentation goes, this was probably the fifth or sixth year I've given it. And so it was really an update on uh, container-based structures and, and how to build safe container-based structures that are in compliance with the building code and all the different tools that are available out there for manufacturers and and builders to use the building code to make code-compliant structures. Um, I have promised to the, the, the people who have attended my presentation for the last six or seven years that next year it'll be a little bit different, actually a lot different. It needs a refresh, and, and we'll have new jokes. I won't be telling the same jokes over and over, Always but it'll good. be some some more cutting-edge stuff on container-based structures. But this last presentation was really around what's the code environment, how has it evolved, and how has it embraced container-based structures?
0: Very good, very good. Well, now that we're back uh, on the on the uh, container train, I have a, a couple more questions for you about containers. You you've done a variety of projects. You you mentioned earlier you built a city. We you've done uh, offices for construction sites and everything in between. Uh, is there a potential for containers that hasn't yet been realized? Is there an idea out there that that could
1: be perfect for containers that you haven't seen done yet? Without a doubt. I think I think we're just seeing the beginning of this container-based structure trend. In fact, I think we're seeing the beginning of modular uh, as a whole, because right now modular is only what, 6% of construction. Yep. Uh, and that's up from 2.5% five, six years ago, but still growing. And so one of the things I've seen about this marketplace that's just been fascinating is going back to that rabbit. I mean, we don't have an R&D department at Falcon where we sit around and think about, oh, wow, we could do this with a container, or we could do that with a container. These ideas come from the marketplace, right? People come to us saying, hey, have you ever thought about doing XYZ with a container? And, 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 you know, fortunate for me, I have a team who is full of problem solvers and they're used to saying, yeah, let's think about that. Let's give it a try, right? And so I think there's so many uses that we have not even uncovered yet. I don't think we've seen all the ideas yet. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about the future uh, of this part of the industry for sure.
0: What would you tell someone who's looking to get into building with containers, who shares your enthusiasm for the industry and wants to start, but really doesn't have a clue where to begin? What would you tell that person?
1: Yeah, so I would tell them several things. One is if you've read that Yahoo article that talks about this beautiful custom home that you can build out of $2 you know, containers or whatever it was, <laughs> don't don't believe everything you read on the internet. Um, the cost savings aren't that dramatic. It can be good, um, but not necessarily, right? So I would say first, set your expectations correctly. I would say second, you know, there are a lot of good thinkers out there around containers, a lot lot of good resources. And just because you can draw it on Google SketchUp, don't believe that that's what you can build Hmm. either, right? So you see a lot of container-based structures that are cantilevered in different ways, um, that have wide openings, and and it's like, Wow, how in the world did they reinforce that? I would reach out to a a, a you know either a manufacturer who's been there, done that, or a design professional, and we have quite a few members in MBI that are great design professionals that can advise as to whether or not something is practical and whether it's constructible before you go too far down that path. And then third, I would really do my my due diligence on kind of the code environment, right? We have made a lot of strides in that area. But um, just sitting down with your local building code official and saying, hey, look, this is what I had in mind. What do you think? And really making them included in that process. Uh, I would say those three things would be kind of the, the, the way that I would get started just to make sure that, that it's worthwhile to go down this path.
0: Very good. Very good. Uh, so what's next for you uh, and what's next for Falcon? Uh, are there any exciting projects on the horizon?
1: Yeah, we've got multiple proje- projects on the horizon that I'm super excited about. I don't think we have enough time to talk about all those That's today. That's all right. <laughs> but, but, you know, just this past year, we doubled our footprint of our manufacturing facility, continue to grow. And I think it's because we're seeing kind of the, 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 the really the convergence of two major trends. One is the modular industry continues to grow. Uh, so we're, we're catching that. And then the use of a containers uh, in that part of the modular industry is, is awesome, right? Because we've been able to clear a lot of the, the, the obstacles with building code. So for me, it's it's like, you know, what else can we do? Um, what other projects can we take on that are fun and exciting and, you know, working with interesting people. But then on the MBI front, you know, I am super excited for the next several years for MBI as well. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary, you know, kudos to MBI. And I think the next 10 years are gonna be some of the most exciting years that MBI sees in its history with just the acceleration of adoption of constr- uh, modular construction, but also with a lot of the technology tools that we're seeing that are coming to play that are making it more affordable, helping people think through it better. And just the sophistication of players who are in this space uh, continues to grow at an exponential rate. So it's just such an exciting time to just yeah, I'm really excited about what's, what's to come.
0: Well, Steven, I, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's great to dive into uh, the world of containers, again, I think it's fascinating. I do like the industrial chic uh, vibe. I, I, I count myself uh, among those people who like um, houses designed that way. And I guess I'll have to get rid of my, uh, my sketchup that had four and it was completely empty inside. <laughs> and oh, well. Um, but thank oh, you for well. your time today. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at uh, uh, the board retreat next week.
1: Thank you, John, for doing this. It's a lot of fun.
0: My name is John McMullen, and this has been another episode of Inside Modular, the podcast of commercial modular construction. Until next time.